This is the Happy Are You Poor podcast, discussing topics related to radical Catholic community. This is your host, Malcolm Schlenderfritz, and joining me today is Philip. I'm glad to have him back. How are you doing, Philip? I'm doing well. Thanks, Malcolm. How about yourself? I'm doing okay. And before we get started, also, I'd like to remind you that this is part two of a two-part podcast, and so if you haven't listen to podcast four on economics yet, it would be better to listen to that one first so that you can get a background for where we're starting today. So in our last podcast, uh, we talked about our economy from the standpoint of living a Christian life, and we tried to figure out what was wrong with our economy. And came up with a bunch of different reasons. They centered around such things as commodification, that everything is produced for the purpose of buying and selling. Even human labor becomes a commodity, and therefore human life becomes a, a commodity, which feeds into the culture of death in our society. We talked about consumerism, about the fundamental injustices to the poor, especially in the third world, of our economic habits. And where we left off was a discussion of what should we do? You know, we're faced with this difficult uh, economic situation that is incalculating false principles into us instead of the principles of the gospel. How do we react to this attack on our principles from our economic order? And I'll turn it over here to Philip. What, Philip, what do you think Christians should do when faced with uh, this current economic situation? I'll give a short answer, and then I'll and then I'll give a slightly longer one. Um, the short answer is that Christians should be socialists, and that socialism is a uh, it, it refers both to an economic order that's more rational than that of capitalism and more just, but it also refers to a process by which we escape the clutches of capitalism, and uh, and that's the w- the the way out of capitalism is through it through exploiting its own internal contradictions and through intentional action aimed at uh, creating that, that more just society. Now, Catholics might be alarmed. Some Catholics are alarmed when they hear that word. And uh, for, for, for whatever reason, that alarm uh, has caused them to come up with some ostensible alternatives. So oftentimes you hear in Catholic circles uh, talk about something called distributism, and that's some sort of economic system, ostensible economic system that's uh, that was invented by G.K. Chesterton and Hilaire Belloc. And you, you also hear about different kinds of, I don't know, these days you hear, quote, common good capitalism, end quote. Um, the reason why I think it's just so simple, you should just, you know, be a Christian socialist, is that each time someone tries to come up with some alternative system, uh, each time someone tries to find a quote third way in between capitalism and socialism, it always resolves. It always reduces to one or the other, and more often than not, it just reduces back to capitalism. So instead of you know trying fruitlessly to beat around the bush and figure out something else and come up with some unique thing that's you know our own third Catholic way, the better option is to just look at look at the matter more objectively and see that. Uh, what exactly is going on in capitalism and how do we use that knowledge of what's going on to get out of it? Philip, uh, thanks for your perspective. I'd 
say that for the record, I am one of those Catholics who get nervous when the word socialism is mentioned. Um, even though I see very clearly the problems in our current largely capitalist economy, I'm still not sold on the idea that socialism is an alternative. At the same time, I've explored the alternatives such as distributism that uh, Philip brought up, and I can see that they are also uh, somewhat flawed. Uh, I'd like to ask Philip to, if you could clarify your position, what in, in short, in a, in a short, concise statement, is the core of socialism that you're referring to? And also, what would be your take on what uh, commitment to socialism would entail for us here faced with this current economic problem in the context of trying to live out the Christian life as fully as we can in all areas of our lives? Just a nice, simple question, huh? <laughs> oh, man. Okay, well, the, the first question is a good one because you basically asked me what is socialism, and that's probably the first thing we want to establish because we're, I think we cleverly uh, avoided using polemical language in our last podcast, and you, you've made this point to me, Malcolm, off, off mic, so to speak, that when people use s certain uh, words like capitalism or socialism, other people sometimes turn their brains off or their brains just turn off automatically because those words are so charged. And, uh, and the worst part of it all is that the, the words get abused. So we did a fairly decent job of defining the central uh, attributes of capitalism last time. We, we talked about who owns what. We talked, I talked about how the means of production are a special kind of property that are owned by a few private individuals. Everyone else has to sell their labor. And that the primary um, commandment of this system is, is grow, 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 and pursue profit. Socialism is a way out of that. Socialism is a system in which workers own the means of production, not, not a special class of people who, um, who buy and sell human labor as a commodity. And more than that, socialism is a, a, a system in which we don't have to prioritize the private good over the common good. And we don't have to exploit the poor for the sake of profit. Socialism ultimately is the abolition of classes, of economic classes, that as we know them today. And that abolition of classes allows a, an economy of cooperation rather than competition. Thanks, Philip. That is helpful. Uh, it, still, you know, we could be a little clearer um, when we're talking about classes. I think um, when, when either distributists or socialists attack the current capitalist or they're not so much talking about inequality of wealth that comes into it but even more fundamental i think is the point that the classes that a distributist or a socialist would want to see removed are the division of society into those who own the means of production which we defined and talked about in the last podcast and those who do not own the means of production and so have to sell their labor for a wage so it's really the destruction of a system of wage earning. Um, and then, Philip, what then concretely, as concretely as, as we can get here, what concretely would um, a commitment to socialism demand from Christian individuals in the here and now in the context of 
the United States of the 21st century? Uh, first, okay, so that's a, another good question, Malcolm. First, I want to just say that maybe this is a little quixotic, but I'll try to turn down the polemical temperature around that word, socialism. So I'd like to just point to a few really important writings from, from Catholics. And these writings are going to answer a lot of your questions better than I ever could. Afterwards, I'll, I'll take a stab at it. So the first is, I, I want to just quickly point listeners to a really interesting essay by Pope Benedict XVI that he wrote in 2006 for a Catholic journal called First Things, in which he makes a distinction between democratic socialism and totalitarian socialism. I imagine that many listeners have only ever associated socialism with totalitarian and despotic regimes. I don't know if that hits home for you, Malcolm. Uh, in a certain way. I mean, I think, I think that by looking carefully at the historical record, we can see that just because a particular regime that called itself socialist behaved badly is no reason to scrap the term. At the same time, I tend to feel that because of the amount of baggage the word has accumulated, it might be time to retire it. But of course, that's my preference. And of course, I have some more philosophic objections to socialism as a scheme that I'll get into when I propose my uh, idea of how we should escape the current crisis. But I'll leave those for now, leave those for later. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Well, I appreciate that. Pope Benedict writes, uh, I'm just going to quote a little bit here from this from this essay, Europe and its discontents, uh, quote, in Europe in the 19th century, the two models were joined by a third, socialism, which quickly split into two branches, one totalitarian and the other democratic. Democratic socialism managed to fit within the two existing models as a welcome counterweight to the radical liberal positions, which it developed and corrected. It also managed to appeal to various denominations. In England, it became the political party of the Catholics, who never felt at home either with the Protestant conservatives or the liberals. In Germany too, Catholic groups felt closer to democratic socialism than to the rigidly Prussian and Protestant conservative forces. In many respects, democratic socialism was and is close to Catholic social teaching and in any case has made a remarkable contribution to the formation of social consciousness. And this distinction is important because it, it mirrors a distinction that's long been accepted on the left. There's an excellent essay by an American uh, leftist and uh, labor movement leader and uh, Trotskyist philosopher Hal Draper. Maybe he wouldn't call himself a, a philosopher, but the essay is called The Two Souls of Socialism, where Draper contrasts socialism from above to socialism from below. And the attempts to impose socialism through, like, it's almost like a trickle down system through state power first, and in particular through the power of the already existing state, those attempts have all, all turned into, well, they've remained exactly that. They've remained state power. The socialism from below that Draper talks about and the democratic socialism that Pope Benedict XVI talked about refer to a kind of socialism that's bottom up, ground up, grassroots, much like the kind of community that you and Peter talked about in parts one and two of your community podcast. So the first answer to your question is, well, you know, what do Catholics need to do in the here and now? Well, Catholics need to 
get involved with grassroots radical politics, grassroots socialist movements, the kinds of movements that have been praised and championed by the popes. Uh, I also have one more quote here that's really interesting. This one is from a letter of Pope John Paul I, where he writes, quote, the workers who were once scattered, like uh, who were once like scattered separate grains of sand have become a cloud united by the trade unions and the various forms of socialism, which can undeniably claim to have been the main means of promoting their welfare almost everywhere, end quote. That's from, uh, again, Pope John Paul I. So socialism, if socialism is principally about workers taking control over what's been kept from them for too long, the first step would be getting involved with various kinds of labor movements and really supporting the rights of workers, in particular, the rights of workers to organize and also supporting institutions that function like socialism writ small. By that, I mean uh, organizations like business co-ops. In a co-op, the work, the means of production are owned by all the workers, all the employees. There are also uh, versions of this in, in other institutions like cooperative banks or credit unions. And the more Catholics can support institutions that involve democratic control over the means of production, the better. So that would be that would just be kind of a first step into socialism. I think here I will briefly outline what I think Catholics should do when faced with our current uh, capitalist and anti-Christian system. And, and first, too, I would like to point out that I do think that uh, authentic spirituality can be found under um, social regimes that do not support it. So we don't, we can't blame all of our uh, personal or societal or ecclesial failures on an oppressive society around us. We can't lose sight of our personal responsibility for what we make of the conditions. Obviously, the conditions, say, in uh, Nazi concentration camps were not conducive to the Christian life, and no one in their right minds would try and replicate those conditions. And yet, in them, some individuals managed to live lives of heroic virtue in what could be arguably the, the most flawed system imaginable. At the same time, if they'd been given a choice, they would have tried to live under other conditions, conditions that, as Peter Maron would have said, make it easier to be good. We want a society that makes it easier to be good. But that said, when we have a society that makes it hard, we're still responsible for our actions and ultimately God gives sufficient grace to all. So just, just to clarify that for listeners. So my response to the current uh, economic order is in some ways similar to Phillips. Uh, I support the idea of workers owning the means of production that they work with, by and large. I don't think that every worker necessarily needs to own it, but what uh, Hiller Bellock would call a determining number of workers. Hiller Bellock had a concept that a state took its tone when a determining number of individuals in it uh, fell, in, fell into certain categories. So a state might have the tone, say, of a, pe a peasant society, even if, say, 10% of the people in it were not working as peasants. So I would certainly support a society in which the determining number of workers own their own means of production, whether as groups or as individuals. 
And the way that I see that we could get there is through the kind of community building that we've discussed in past podcasts. I think that the goal of Christians is, right now as far as economics is concerned, is to form the kind of community that could rightfully pursue a kind of socialism. So for Christians, one of the exemplars of the of the Christian life is the monastic unit, the monastery, which is a socialist planned democratic economy. In fact, the monastery is almost everything that a socialist could wish, any socialist dreamer of the past. And it's actually existing, unlike socialism, which currently doesn't have too many actual successes on the ground. The difference I would hold it is that the, the monk is motivated by love. And because he has a community, when that community acquires the means of producing wealth, say land or some sort of industry, it is naturally shared in what could be called a socialist manner. And similarly in Acts, in the first few chapters of Acts, the first Christian believers had something that would approximate socialism because, again, they were a community cemented by love. And I've recently been reading a very interesting book by the first president of Tanzania. And he was a socialist, a Christian Catholic, as a matter of fact, socialist. And he talked about how socialism is, in one sense, a frame of mind. Socialism is a certain attitude towards the world. And so I would hold that the only way to advance a Christian economy, whether we're going to call it socialism or not, even though I would prefer not to use that word simply because I think it, it just acts as too much of a lightning rod, even if it would accurately describe, say, a monastic community, I would prefer, I would prefer, as a matter of fact, to use as few words to describe what we're doing as possible. But that aside, if we're to do it, I think that the first step has to be creating the kinds of communities that could do it well. Without a community, one can't have social ownership. If there's only a mass of isolated individuals, as there currently is in the United States, one can't use, one, one can't develop socialism. Because if those individuals somehow collectively came into the possession of the means of production, they would still behave as uh, isolated, autonomous individuals. There would not be that community bond of love. And then to bring up another uh, quote from, from the same book, this, this man posited that the only way that one could involve the government in socialism is if that government was already the right sort of government, a truly democratic government. And because I have many doubts as to the goodness of our current economic system with its uh, parties and its polarization, I would oppose any attempt to use our current uh, governmental structure to advance anything like uh, socialism. As a matter of fact, I am becoming, getting to the point where I would, if not oppose, at least be non-committal about any attempts to get much of anything done with our current governmental infrastructure because it seems that our current system thrives by making enemies. And as soon as an issue becomes enmeshed in our current political system, half the country decides that it's something to be opposed. So to take an example, I think it would be great if everyone in uh, the country raised a significant share of their own vegetables in a backyard. And you know, apart from some people who have really finicky HOA ideas, 
most people would at least think that that was perfectly nice for other people to do. You know, I doubt you could mobilize much sentiment against people raising vegetables so long as it didn't infringe on, you know, other people's uh, lives too much. But let's say that one of our political parties, or even let's imagine a brand new political party, took as a plank in its platform to increase backyard vegetable production by 50%. Immediately, you'd have millions of people who, simply because one, one party or one group said it, was attacking this idea altogether. And suddenly, the very fact that you had a vegetable garden in your backyard, even if you weren't connected with the vegetable garden party, suddenly the fact that you had a, a vegetable garden would antagonize certain neighbors. The harmless vegetable garden would suddenly have become yet another flashpoint in an ongoing cultural war. So as long as we have a dis fairly dysfunctional political scene dominated by a cultural war, I think it behooves what Christians, no matter what they're doing, whether economics or anything else, to find the least political ways of advancing it. And when I, I do also want to say, when I say political, uh, there's a famous quote by Aristotle that says that human beings are naturally political animals. And I would agree with that. I think part of our current problem is that we're not political enough. And yet the kind of thing that an American thinks of when he hears politics is only one small subset of a larger political whole. Politics in the Aristotelian sense means a life together, a social life together. And I would argue that right now we need much less of what the average American calls politics and much more of all the other things that an Aristotelian would mean by politics. So that's a very short presentation of my idea of a role for it and some of the key differences between what Philip at least seems to be advocating. All right, let's get into it. Um, thanks, Malcolm. I want to respond to a few specific points because in responding to them, I think I'll clarify my own position a bit more. First things first, we know from our from the church and the writings of of the popes i mean ultimately from the scriptures i'm thinking of matthew 25 we know that society has to provide certain things for the flourishing of people we talked last podcast about how we're both body and soul and while there are exceptional cases where the absence of like the physical means of subsistence still allow people to achieve those higher goods. Like, you know, there are saints who have subsisted on only the Eucharist and not any other food. Most of us need things like food. Most of us need things like medical care. And in fact, actually a great list of the things that we need are outlined in an encyclical um, called Pachim, Pachim and Terrace by uh, Pope St. John, the 23rd, in which he writes that man has the right to live the right to bodily integrity, the right to the means necessary for the proper development of life, to food, clothing, shelter, medical care, rest, and necessary social services. He also has the right to be looked after in any cases of ill health and disability. So how do we have a society that provides for those basic needs? How do we get there? That's maybe, that's maybe the, the, the disagreement. And I'll make a concession, Malcolm. I think you're right. I think you're right about virtue. I think you're right about looking to the monasteries as an example, because not that monasteries were uniformly exemplars of virtue. There's plenty of cases of corrupt monasteries, but as there's a Christian poet and writer named Charles Piggy who said, and he was a Christian socialist, and Piggy said that the revolution will be moral or not at all. 
the revolution will be moral or not at all. So the revolution has to be moral. There has to be a kind of interior revolution in our hearts. We have to be ready to detach ourselves from the goods of this world and attach ourselves to the plight of the oppressed. And a lot of that has to be, has to be moral and ultimately Christian has to be rooted in grace. With that said, there's a really good quote by a Jesuit priest uh, named Alfred Overhilly in an essay. Actually, he wrote a series of essays comparing some of the economic theories of Karl Marx to those of Thomas Aquinas. And, he, and he, he's cr criticizing Karl Marx. So I, I want to make that clear also that, um, and this is a contentious point. I don't know if I'll, I'll, I'll lose any fans on this one, but in certain circles, this will render you like persona non grata. I don't think you have to be a Marxist <laughs> to be a socialist. I think you can have, you can, you can be a non-Marxist socialist, but Overhilly writes that the, he writes about, you know, so he's criticizing Karl Marx, but he makes this one little concession to Karl Marx. I actually think it's a pretty big one. He writes that the kind of the mistake of the medieval theologians was to think that you could achieve this economic prosperity and security, that it could be, quote, kept alive solely by moral and religious persuasion, end quote. And this is where I think, Malcolm, we disagree about how do we get to that society that provides for the needs of all, that provides those basic needs and brings justice and equity and um, ensures the, the basic human flourishing of, of all members of society, not just the rich. The church can preach about how usury is wrong until it's blue in the face, but until you make it impossible or difficult for usurers to commit usury, not much is going to change. The same thing happened during the slave trade. There were many bishops who were preaching about the absolute evil that was slavery. And, you know, maybe there were some converts made. It would be a beautiful thing if someone realized that they were participating in a dehumanizing and brutally evil, sinful, exploitative system and changed their ways. I don't think most people did. I think most people kept on owning slaves. Uh, in England, uh, Christian reformers like William Wilberforce found ways to make slave trade, the slave trade unprofitable. And, and in the United States, we fought a civil war that ended in the abolition of slavery. It's illegal now. And that's what needed to happen. So there's a certain sense in which perhaps the one, one of the things we can learn from the Marxists is that you need to understand how systems work. If you understand how systems work scientifically, then you can find ways to undermine them. You can find ways to restructure them. When you restructure them in certain ways, you make certain kinds of behavior more difficult or impossible. That's really what I'm interested in. I'm interested in how do we make it more difficult or impossible for the kinds of exploitation that we denounced in the first podcast, how do we make that impossible in our world? Uh, yeah, Philip, thanks. Those were all really great questions to bring up. And I guess, you know, this is a very, very tricky topic, and I want to, to trade very lightly, because I could easily be seen as saying something almost the opposite of what I am saying. So the Christian individual is always called 
to solidarity with the poor. The Catechism of the Catholic Church talks about a fundamental orientation towards the poor. And the message of the gospel is that good news are preached to the poor, as Christ quotes Isaiah, prophesying about his ministry. And yet, I think that the, for one thing, of course, there can be legitimate disagreement about the best ways to go about helping the poor. There can't be any disagreement that we have to do so. Um, that's clear cut. But where the virtue of prudence comes in is when you take a, a good, in this case, aiding the oppressed or the poor, the virtue of prudence helps one to discern the best means to that route. And the virtue of prudence is not as clear cut as some of the other virtues. What is prudent in one situation may be imprudent in another. And, and that's sort of the genius of prudence. You can't, you can't take a particular action and say, this action is not prudent without knowing all about the context. Unlike some other virtues, some things are always right or always wrong. But prudence, above all the virtues, demands a heavy attention to be paid to context. And, and this is one of the areas where good people who all agree that the poor should be helped. And I would argue that, you know, by and large, most people would agree, would agree that the poor should be helped, that there shouldn't be poverty. And yet, as an example of what I talked about a few minutes ago, um, the only way you can get a large group of people to say that the poor should not be helped is once it becomes politicized. Once something becomes politicized, people will oppose even the most seemingly harmless um, situations uh, imaginable. But aside from that, I would, I would argue that in our solidarity with the oppressed, the Christian way, at least in the, early, in the first centuries, is to join the oppressed. We talked in an earlier podcast about the importance of solidarity and how Christ came in solidarity with us. Um, we were oppressed. And, you know, there's a certain imagery that Christ came primarily to fight the devil or fight the forces of evil. But if that's true, and there is at least a certain grain of truth to it, he chose a very funny way of fighting. It's a way that ended up with him nailed to a cross. And... Yet that act of coming to be with, that act of radical identification with the oppressed, in this case the both spiritually and physically oppressed of those doomed to die by sin, by the forces of evil, was our salvation. And then similarly in the early church, the, the bulk of people in Christ's world were poor already, so they didn't have to get in solidarity with the poor. They were the poor. But for the few rich men, the call was pretty clear. They were to join the poor by giving away their money and giving it away to the benefit of the poor. And, of course, you know, the, the world, Christ's world was a very exploitative world. It was based on slavery. It was more exploitative than anything going on today. And not only was it a slave world, but in Christ's part of the world, it was also a colonial world. The the nation of Israel was under foreign occupation and a really brutal foreign occupation. And yet, Christ and the early Christians did not take certain means that would seem to have been um, possible. And, and even if they weren't like humanly possible, of course, Christ, in a sense, his life, anything could have been possible because he could choose how he came into the world. Unlike all the rest of us, we could argue about any saints and say, well, they would have done something different if they had lived in our times or if they had different opportunities available to them. And that's very true and, and should always be kept in mind. But with Christ, that doesn't work because he chose how, when, where he was going to come into the world 
to achieve his purpose to found his church. And his life is supposed to be a pattern, an exemplar. So to my, my opinion, the Christian is one who himself does everything in his power and everything in his group's power, since we're social, political beings, to aid the poor. But I'm not so sure that the Christian is the one who attempts to take hold of the levers of earthly power to improve things for the poor. And to, to look at that from a different slant, I would argue, too, that the way of love is always superior to the way of force. All earthly politics is somewhat based on force. If a law isn't enforced, it's, it's not worth it. In one sense, an election is a sort of war. It's a struggle over who gets to control the guns for the next four years, the guns that will be used to enforce the law. And Christ didn't come with any kind of force, even against, even spiritual force against the devil, it seems. You know, he, the, the devil attacked him and got him killed. And that was, in a sense, that was the strategy. That was the tactic. So to look, to look at this, you know, sure, you know, worldly means have been used to wipe out slavery, and that's a good thing. And yet, because only earthly means were used, Racism is still a running sore on the body of our nation. The old animosities and angers that are left from both from slavery and from the Civil War to end slavery have been a constant weakening force on our nation ever since. And at a certain point, you know, like we could, I guess, pass laws and we have tried, you know, with with some success to pass laws banning certain kinds of hate speech. But in the end, you can't legislate love. And without love, Evil continues to multiply, even with the application of worldly power to uproot it. The evil will simply reemerge in a new form, in a new way, with a new set of damage, unless we do the only thing that, that the thing that only Christians in the name of Christ can do and bring love to this broken world. That was, that was very moving. That was beautiful, Malcolm. It's sometimes it's hard to even tell, you know, where we agree and where we disagree. I think, I think one ingredient missing from your analysis is that people grow. Okay. Love char charity. Charity is a theological virtue. That's a virtue that we have infused in our souls through grace. Um, it's also love is also uh, an emotion or a passion of the soul. And generally the virtues are acquired through practice, practice like worldly practice encounters with real people. So there's a little bit of, here's kind of what's missing. Malcolm is like, you know, you make this point, you said, well, you know, yeah, we ban, okay. We ban slavery through, quote, worldly means, but, you know, because the means were worldly, we didn't solve the spiritual problem, which is racism. I don't think that's quite right. I mean, yeah, of course, we haven't solved the problem of racism. But I remember years ago when I had a completely different, you know, was a young, young freewheeling uh, libertarian guy thinking about the Civil Rights Act and I was kind of asking that same question. Well, can you, can you legislate morality? And it's so simple to think that one of the great things about the civil rights legislation in this country is that 
it just brought black people and white people into the same rooms together. And like that has a sort of effect. Like if you spend time with people, you will see them in more human and nuanced ways. You won't you'd be less likely to demonize them. And I, I think something sim similar happens when you use quote worldly means to achieve say more democratic economy or more justice for workers when workers get together to organize or they form cooperatives, when people are parts of institutions that are more democratic and more cooperative, they grow in virtue just by virtue, by virtue of those experiences. You grow in virtue by exposing yourself to alternate ways of life and to practicing alternate ways of life. So in that sense, worldly means can be can become, or I should say, worldly means can have spiritual outcomes. That's that's what I mean to say. And uh, there's sometimes, you know, Christians have set up such a strong division between worldly means and spiritual means that at various at various points in time in Christian history, there have been entire groups of Christians who basically had an attitude of complete and total resignation to the world, to the problems of the world, where any participation in politics where even any material support for the poor and for the hungry was considered an inappropriate use of worldly means, even though that comes at, that directly violates the commandment of Christ when he tells us who gets who gets in, who goes to heaven, who goes to hell in the judgment on the nations. So worldly means is said in many ways, and we need to decide which worldly means are better than others using the virtue of prudence. And we also need to sanctify those worldly means through our Christian love, but not exclude them on the grounds that they're, quote, worldly. That's what I worry about. Yeah, Philip, that's a fair criticism. And I certainly don't want to look like I'm saying that, for instance, the Civil Rights Act was a bad thing. It was a great thing. You can't have a workable nation in which two groups of people are not allowed the same public privileges. That isn't just a moral wrong. That's a wrong that a society can't stand up under. And I think that's where I would make a certain critique that insofar as one's dealing with trying to make a workable state, obviously worldly means are what are going to be used. Um, from, you know, imagine an unbiased outsider from some totally alien environment coming and saying, well, this nation, what it needs is a civil rights act so that these tensions can begin to be resolved and they don't tear the place apart. And that's a great thing. And you know, like in the worldly sphere, if, there were, if we were voting right now on the Civil Rights Act, I would certainly be voting in favor of it. I think, though, that there can be a danger in confusing two different projects. One is the worldly project of developing a reasonable, livable state. And the other is the project of living as a Christian. And of course, those two projects are not totally separate. There's no airtight or watertight compartments in life. But they are distinct. Uh, you know, it, it does bother me somewhat when conservatives show up and say that Christ didn't come to found a better state, because usually what they mean by it is that they can oppress the poor as much as they like. But it's, it's true enough. Every error has at least a grain of truth. And it's true enough that Christ did not come uh, 
to found a better kind of state. He left that to, because at the same time, because there are these different components to us, he respected our ability to figure out how to run a better state from earthly principles, just like he didn't come, you know, some Christians think that the Bible was written to teach them science. And nothing could be farther from the truth. God let us figure out science by ourselves, and he lets us figure out political science by ourselves, largely. Now, that's not to say, of course, that if everyone was Christians, it would be a lot easier to have a just state. And it's also not to say that it wouldn't be easier to live as Christians if we lived in a just state. But still, the the primary data point remains that the early Christians lived in a flagrantly unjust state and lived as Christians better than you and I could probably ever hope to do. And not just as individuals, as a group. As a group, the church lived out its mission in those first few centuries, not that there weren't problems, but it lived that mission out perhaps better at that point when it had no social influence, no influence on worldly power, and lived in a perfectly horrendous state than it has ever since, than it had, than it did, say, in the high Middle Ages, where the church had a large role in shaping um, the social order. And yet in that era, the church did not provide the witness that the early church does and did. Now, that, does that mean that uh, uh, societal change was a bad thing? No, by, by all means, no. But still, as far as like, once we talk about how we should do politics, we're getting into a situation where there isn't a lot of clear guidance in the revelation of Christ. Whereas if we're talking about how we individually live a Christian life, there's a lot of guidance. Um, as I don't remember, I think Thomas Aquinas said somewhere that there is no, um, there is, like Revelation doesn't hold that one form of government is superior to another. Revelation does teach that we Christians must live justly and with love towards all. So just that there is there is somewhat of a distinction here between living the Christian life and an ideal state. There's an overlap, but there is, at the same time, there is a distinction. And, and this is a wider point that I've been making to the podcast. I believe that the Christian life, we should be looking for solutions that are multifunctional. And that might sound kind of odd, but we talked about it with preppers. Preppers are worried about the collapse of society. So they, they try and solve the problem from their point of view by stocking a bunker with tons of goods that will allow them to survive. And that might solve a certain problem if indeed society does collapse. But it's a very narrow problem and it's a very narrow solution. And it is only targeted at solving one specific problem. The Christian would be better served by focusing on those multi-purpose solutions, which create social renewal as a byproduct. The early Christians did not attempt social renewal. The early Christians were social renewal. And that's that's a very critical difference. Or say in the in the war-torn society of medieval uh, Italy, all these petty little states constantly fighting one, and they're all Christians. This is a crying shame. And St. Francis of Assisi put a large check to it because he became so popular in the years after his death. His third order grew so much, and, and one of the requirements of his third order was that the men who joined it could not carry weapons and could not fight any war unless commanded by the Pope. Well, that really put a damper on all this feudal violence, because even if the local lord of the manor 
hadn't hadn't become um, you know a, a third order Franciscan, the likelihood was a significant percentage of his men had, and he knew they wouldn't come up, and he knew that their vows would be upheld by the church. But Francis wasn't setting out to solve the problem of political violence. He'd actually suffered from that problem in his youth. He'd ended up in a dungeon in one of the rival neighboring towns near Assisi. But he wasn't even thinking about the problem of political violence. He was in love with the Lord. And he was trying to spread that love to others. And his, his society that continues on today not only helped to solve the problem of political violence, probably more than any material political solution could have done, it solved so many other problems but it solved them because they weren't focusing on those problems. So similar to that prepper with his, his huge stockpile of food. If he got to know his neighbors and spent the money and time he spent prepping in getting to know his neighbors, he'd probably survive a disaster better than he would with just that isolated bunker. But the, the survival benefit is like about 258th on the list of benefits that would come, the spiritual, practical, emotional, physical benefits that would come from him putting his efforts into getting to know his neighbors. On the, so on the note of multifunctional solution, why don't I throw out my idea of a multifunctional solution that I, I hope is at least a little bit conciliatory. I want to be a little bit ironic because I really appreciate that you've had me on for two episodes and that you had me on knowing full well that I... I was going to come on and talk about socialism. So let me let me take a step back and just say a few things that hopefully you'll you'll like. The first is that, you know, after our first podcast, I was really thinking about like what is the tension? Because I, I really like everything that you say about community. And I I think it's one of the most beautiful things that Christians can do in the world is to form intentional communities. And you, you know, you've you've uh you have such a good sober perspective on it, Malcolm, because you also know that there are dangers there and you've criticized attempts at community formation that are closed and insular and paranoid and unhealthy and things like that. But you ultimately, you believe very strongly in community. And, and I, after that first podcast, I thought about the last chapter of this great, great book by Alistair McIntyre, a Catholic philosopher, another, another kind of Catholic Marxist, or at least Catholic with an interest in radical politics. And it's called After Virtue. And in the last chapter of After Virtue, Alistair McIntyre talks about what is to be done to reclaim virtue. And he says, well, you have two choices. Uh, you have two choices philosophically. You got Aristotle or Nietzsche. You got, you know, nihilism or something like an Aristotelian virtue ethics. And the way to achieve that is through uh, looking to two historical figures, one is St. Benedict, and the other is Trotsky. It's Trotsky and St. Benedict. And, uh, and although he doesn't spell it out very, he doesn't articulate it very clearly in that, in that last chapter, there's something about that phrase, Trotsky and St. Benedict, that really appeals to me because it targets both aspects of this political and moral revolution. On the one hand, let's start with St. Benedict. On the one hand, forming intentional communities in which people can share goods together and deliberate about the common good and grow in virtue and practice growing in holiness and the spiritual life according to the height of Christian spiritual tradition is excellent. On the other hand, local communities need to be connected internationally. 
and that's and that's I think the Trotsky piece. You know, Trotsky opposed the Soviet Union on the grounds that you know socialism in one country is not is not socialism at all. Unless you have solidarity with people all around the world, then you will become insular, and worse, you might become nationalist. And uh, the way this looks in practice, I mean, all of my examples so far, I feel like I've been I've been citing these kind of European theologians. So I think one of the best examples of that would be something like the base ecclesial communities in Latin America that were inspired by the liberation theologians, where you have local people living together, sharing uh, goods materially, but also sharing meaning and also kind of connected to each other in, in a broader network because because local communities can be attacked and destroyed. In fact, many of the base ecclesial communities were quite literally attacked with military violence by different dictatorships. And many local, even, you know, your example of monasteries was, was a telling, you, you kind of said monasteries are a great example of successful Christian socialism. Well, you know, how successful many monasteries are now closing down. And there's, there are many monasteries that used to produce things on their own that now have to hire laborers and actually sell goods on the market. Like some monasteries will brew their own beer because capitalism is global because the economic order that we're in is global resistance to that economic order has to be global. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of willing to accept everything that you say about community with the caveat that we need also solidarity that's international and solidarity even with those who don't share our faith in Christ. That's a very beautiful thought because one of the aspects that I want to emphasize about community that I've been emphasizing on this podcast is community for evangelization. If a community is for itself, it will it will die. It will become a stagnant, inward-looking thing. And of course, this is my opinion. I know there's people who disagree with me on this. And one of the best ways to evangelize is through friendship. In fact, I would say the only way to evangelize is through friendship. Pope Francis has talked about the difference between being persettalizing and being evangelizing. A persettalizer has an idea, and they walk up to another person and try and cudgel the idea into their heads through argument. The evangelizer evangelizes through friendship. You can't evangelize well to people that you don't know. And so I wish that our community building would be oriented to evangelization, oriented to the wider world in such a way that those outside will be drawn to what we are doing. I mean, that, again, is the early church. The early church drew people in by the witness of life, even in a very hostile environment. And the early church had that kind of global solidarity. You see St. Paul taking up a collection for the community in Jerusalem that was going on hard times. Or to take that multi-purpose solution of St. Francis, his order went all over the world, creating solidarity. And now, like, I get a mailing from someone, some Franciscan, say, in the Philippines. Oh, they've just had a disaster. They need help. And we can have solidarity with these people we've never met because of this community of love that spans the world in the, in the order of St. Francis or in the wider church, in the church that spans the world. 
So I, I would agree that we, you know, if we're only interested in our own families, in our own communities, we have not uh, taken up the love of Christ. You know, so often, I, I think we brought this up in one of the first podcasts, so often we modern Western world Christians have fallen so far below the level of natural virtue that we mistake the resumption of natural virtue for Christianity. We imagine that, you know, like if we just love our families and our neighbors, and that's a pretty far piece for most of us, you know, if we, if we shared radical community with our neighbors such that we would feed them when they were hungry, surely that is the kingdom of God. But Christ would say, don't even the good pagans do as much because the good pagans did. Community of the sort that would share resources locally, that would take care of one another, is to be found in many non-Christian cultures. Only in Christ, though, can one really feel that connection, that mystical body that joins us to those across the world who speak a different language, who don't share our customs or ways, and that we will never see and that will never affect us. Only there can we feel for those other people as if we were all connected in one body. So I think that quite quite far from proposing some sort of insular solution in which we check out from the problems of the world, our community should make us more aware and more sympathetic and more eager to help those who are suffering wherever they are, whoever they are, for the love of Christ. That's beautiful. That's beautiful, Malcolm, because that's, it's so easy to turn in on ourselves. And a, Christianity is a religion that looks outwards. I mean, it's, it's following the example of Jesus Christ who went to the peripheries, which Pope Francis is so fond of reminding us about that. We're not called to be primarily living in our comfort zone. And it's on those peripheries where I think we encounter those fellow travelers who might even be better at natural justice than we are. I like that distinction you made, you know, in that community podcast where you said, we haven't even reached the level of like natural community that pre-Christian pagan societies had. How, you know, and then we, we talk this big talk about communities of love and agape, like imitating acts of the apostles. Like that's the next level up. I think there are many people out there who know about the problems with our economic system, who have a certain level of natural community and natural justice that actually Christians could learn from. And this, this is, this is the point, this is a, an important point about humility. So often, so often there's a temptation for the Christian to go into any situation thinking that he's, he or she is there to teach when so often we're actually there to learn. And, and though no community is perfect and no political movement is perfect, I think, I think Christians could do well to learn even from those outside the, the boundaries, the formal boundaries of the church, learn about some of these principles like justice and solidarity, um, learn about different ways of living, different ways of being, and ultimately bring that Christian love to those encounters that could be fruit for evangelization. Maybe I'm a little too optimistic, but I, I would like to see that. I think instead what I've seen so much of is just us versus them. This us versus them mentality in the, in the church. Philip, what you said reminded me of what Father Michael Gately said in his book, um, The One Thing is Three. But he was talking about his early experience and about how he knew this Mormon family 
who exemplified family love and family virtues better than any Christian or any Catholic family he'd ever met. And he was explaining this book, like, how could that be? They don't have the fullness of the faith. We Catholics are held to, to believe that we Catholics have the fullness of the truth. How then could we learn from outsiders like this Mormon family? And the answer is that while we may have the whole of the truth, any given outsider may live a certain aspect of the truth better than uh, many Christians or many Catholics do. That we can't blind ourselves to the fact that, well, we, like, having the truth is a relatively insignificant thing. Embodying the truth is the important thing. And that at any, like, any given topic you want to choose from social justice to family love, a particular outsider might be doing a better job of embodying the truth of the matter than any particular or even the majority of Catholics. And, and so that, that might be a good transition to our next podcast because the motivation of things is so important. You know, an action can be good or bad. There are some actions in given circumstances that are always wrong and others that are always right. But with the wrong motivation, even a good action can be a dangerous thing. That for the Christian, the motivation is so important. And that Christ doesn't expect perfection from us. He doesn't even expect success. He expects actions that are aimed at the proper goal. The actions that are done for the right motivation. And so in our next podcast, we will be discussing um, Father Gately's other book, Consoling the Heart of Jesus, which provides a ground for anything we do, whether it's reforming the economy or whether it's just having a meal with our neighbor. His book provides us with a spirituality that can ground our attempts. So thanks so much, Philip, for coming and sharing with us. I'm sure this was, was a very uh, insightful conversation. Yeah, thank you, Malcolm. Yeah. I really, really, really appreciate it. And uh, I hope that uh, I haven't scared too many listeners. But again, anything that I say uh, does not reflect the opinions of the Happy Are You Poor podcast or website. Uh, and to reiterate my caveat from the beginning of the last podcast, economics is almost certain to produce disagreements. If you don't like our positions or one of our positions or anything on here, we want to hear about actually disagreements are more valuable for the ongoing mission of this uh, website than agreements. If someone just says, you know, nice, great podcast, well, that's fun to hear. But if someone says, I think you got this wrong, we want to hear about it. We want to find the truth. We're not uh, perfectly sure that we have got the truth. And if you think that we're wrong, please exercise Christian charity and correct us. And if if necessary, you could come on the podcast to correct us or write in comments to our website. Every podcast has a comment feature on the website or write a guest blog post or start a series of blog posts to discuss the truth because in these difficult times, we need more conversation, not less. Thanks all of you and look for our next podcast in two weeks. <laughs>